0: What's up, interpreters? My name is Sam Ham. I'm a professor emeritus from the University of Idaho and effectively a lifelong member of NAI and before it, AIN. And I'm very happy to be here with you, Paul and Song.
1: What is up, interpreters? I am Paul Caputo. Very happy to be here with Sam Ham, who just gave uh, maybe the most modest introduction of Sam Ham someone could give. So <laughs> legendary interpreter... Figure in the field, Sam Ham. So glad to be here with you and with me, as always. Is
2: hi, I'm Song. I'm your NAI event manager. And what's up, interpreters? Sam, this is the second time we've had you on our podcast, and it is always a pleasure. And it always coincides with baseball season being played. So
0: no figure. That's that's correct. You've never contacted me about anything <laughs> during. Any other sports
1: season. you <laughs>
2: know.
1: Well, we may be able to get into the uh the respective playoff races for the Phillies, Mariners, and Red Sox, Sox. who are mine, Sam's, and Song's teams, respectively. <laughs> but in the meantime, let's talk about the incredible contributions that Sam Ham has made to the field of interpretation over the years. Sam, you and I go way, way back in my NAI career. You were one of the very first uh, people I met. And it's funny that we mentioned baseball because the story that I always tell is that you came up and introduced yourself to me in North Bend, Washington at an NAI Northwest region, Pacific Northwest region workshop, because I was wearing a Phillies hat and you were wearing a Mariners hat and we were both baseball fans. I little did I know at the, at this brand new, in my brand new job, my brand new career, what a legend you were. But here we are talking to you now about about, you know, almost 20 years later, uh, about everything that that well not we can't possibly cover everything. So we've picked out a few things that we want to talk to you about. So I'm going to just ask you first. I know that the the whole notion of hard research on brain science and the way people learn and the way people understand messages has been central to the work that that you've done. So. That that's where I'd like to start. Can you talk about what it is, uh, you know, that informs the work that you do that led to, you know, all of your writing on thematic interpretation?
0: I can and I, I I can tell you, it all began in the summer of 1979, when I was the interpretive team coach at Olympic National Park, and I, I, I wasn't the chief of interpretation, I was the coach. I didn't evaluate people. I coached them. I worked with them. And I would go around the park, it's a rather large park, uh, and, and go to every talk, every guided walk, every presentation and orientation talk, and then come back at least a second time um, to follow up with the interpreter on the previous advice I'd given them. It was a great job. But I myself were giving that summer my own guided walks and and I did a campfire program when somebody else couldn't be there. I put on my uniform and I went and did the campfire program. Um, But what I noticed in my guided walks is that I was, I was in this amazing uh, rainforest, the the whole rainforest in Olympic National Park, a temperate rainforest, gets 12 feet of rain a year, and the trees are huge and the, and, and, and the wildlife is fantastic, and it, to me, it was just one of those magical places where, especially at that young impressionable age, it would blow me away. I would literally get goosebumps sometimes walking down this trail and looking at these giant, almost, you know, several hundred year old trees that, that were that were six feet, you know, redwood size, Douglas firs or hemlocks and, and Western red cedars. I was noticing that my audiences weren't getting the same reaction. It was when the thought is obvious as it seems today to any interpreter or communicator of any kind, it occurred to me very clearly that I'm not the audience those people are different than me and then a little while later i figured out because they outnumbered me that made them normal <laughs> and so <laughs> and so but this this interest suddenly spawned i'd always been interested in communication psychology in one way or another but that recognition as as obvious as that might sound today to your listeners led me on what is now a more than four decade journey of trying to understand cause and effect relationships between communication input and accomplishment. and in other words, how can an interpreter do his or her job in certain ways that are more likely, that statistically, empirically, are more likely to produce the outcomes that you have in mind, like goosebumps, caring, loving, and things mattering, and then those sorts of things that interpreters appreciating that we talk about all the time. What are the cause and effect relationships? So that's where brain science and particularly Cognitive and behavioral psychology became the focus of my attention, but the focus of my attention was certainly on doing research. Later, I I got my PhD, and and then we know, you know, 450 publications later, I took research seriously, but what I really, really worked at that attracted attention to my work in behavioral sciences and cognitive sciences was that I could interpret it. (laughs) Hmm. that I could make it not esoteric. I could make it, it's it's thoroughly theoretical and it's all based on some pretty esoteric science if you read it, but I wouldn't bog down my students or interpreters when I train them with that stuff. I would just give them enough of it so that they appreciated the evidence so that they knew I wasn't making stuff up hmm. and then show them the practical application. And that was the link, the link between applied communication, practical Interpretive application and the empirical basis for it. And that's basically what my career has been defined by trying to make that science that is clearly relevant to interpreters, applicable to them so they can see how to use it to do their everyday work better.
2: Sure. So it seems to me like you can take these, um, you know, the brain science that you're talking about. And it, there's a direct application to your tour model, right? Which is thematic, organized, relevant, and entertaining. This was a, a really significant contribution to the profession of interpretation. How did you how did you come up with yeah. this? I mean, I, if you if you Google this, right, it pops up on Wikipedia about thematic interpretation. <laughs>
0: I still don't know who did that site, but they, they did a pretty good. They did a pretty good job. They
2: did pretty good. They did pretty yeah.
0: good. That's a great question song, Uh, but I have to tell you that the Tor model, T-O-R-E, evolved. It resulted from all of that research. In 1990, I went to Costa Rica on a sabbatical leave. And I did, I did a half year sabbatical and I was attached to the National University of Costa Rica as that was sort of the institutional affiliation. But I was there to write my first book, which would be published in Spanish a year be- before it was published in English because I had a contract with the US State Department in Honduras to produce a certain number of copies of it. So that which helped finance the, the, my work on the book and my sabbatical leave. Uh, but when, when I sat down at my little laptop, in what my kids call the Star Wars room because <laughs> it was open air with bars. But when I, at night when my computer screen was on, these huge insects would come <laughs> through their all, all. It was, it was quite, quite a show actually. Uh, but it was there one night and I said, I have got to now summarize and try to put into categories what all this research is telling me. And now over a century, of research on how the brain processes communication and how that communication can Im- influence us in various ways as human beings, how we think, how we feel, how we behave, et cetera. Looking at that, all of that research and those literally hundreds of studies, maybe more, it became pretty obvious that interpretation needed to be, and remember the first iteration of the Torah model was the E-R-O-T framework enjoyable, relevant, organized, thematic, and, and interpretation making a difference on purpose in the first chapter, I, I tell a little bit about the history of why I reversed it and made it TOR, um, and not just because people wanted to add an I and a C and make it erotic, <laughs> which is, they did, um, but, but it, it had to be enjoyable to process, because these are pleasure seekers, they're visitors in leisure settings right? They, it has to matter to people, has to be relevant, has to connect to the things they care about. That's the R. And it has to be organized for easy processing. One of the first things that happened to a voluntary audience, what I call a non-captive audience, right, is after, if they have to work too hard to follow your train of thought, or if it seems esoteric or, 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 or just long-winded, they just tune out. Right. And or physically leave you. And So that's E-R-O. And that is O-R-E in the Torah model. But that is what entertainment is. People want to make the E entertaining. It is not. It is enjoyable to process. Because to be entertaining, which means literally to hold attention, that's what entertainment literally means. If I say to you, well, thanks for your your, your opinion, uh, song, but but would you be willing to entertain a slightly different take on that? You see, I'm asking you to hold it in mind. That's, the, this, that's what entertainment literally means. And in Spanish and Old French, entretener, it means to hold within, within your brain or, or within your mind. E, R, and O. Our entertainment, the, the entertainment industry is an E R O or in the Torah model O R E industry, and so when something is enjoyable to process, matters to you, right, and is easy to process, you're going to pay attention to it until the cows come home, unless one of those elements changes or is no longer present. Does that if that make sense? And so that's infotainment, E R O or O R E. But it occurred to me, if you want to make a difference, you've got to hold attention, not as an end in itself. You might as well just, you know, get a get a straw hat, the banjo if all you want to do is entertain. Right? <laughs> but it's entertainment for a purpose. And that's where the tea comes into play. And this comes from a lot of research. Give them something to think about. And that's what a theme is. It's a platform to have their own thoughts, make their own meanings, right? And arrive at their own conclusions, their own morals of the story, right? That's what an interpreter does on a good day. That's tour quality interpretation. Does that answer the question?
1: It, it does. does. And, you know, it's funny, actually, we uh, we did a bad job as podcast hosts here because we just assume everyone knows who Sam Ham is. And as you're talking, I'm reminded of uh, the book's Uh, that you have written most recently of course interpretation making a difference on purpose and I remember when you were working on this book Sam this was another NAI regional workshop we were in Dickinson North Dakota the snow was blowing sideways for an entire week and you and I were sitting there in this sort of dimly lit pub having a beer drinking I think moose drool if I remember yeah we were in Montana Paul I said, North Dakota, you're right. You're right. This was, Montana. was Montana. Yes. I remember you were the not in the, particularly. So. You were not in Dickinson, North Dakota, right? This was the Montana workshop. But anyway, we were talking about the new book that you were working on uh, yeah. interpretation, making a difference on purpose, which is the, the current version of, of your book. It's the it's the most recent book that you've written. And you said to me something that really stuck with me when you first uh, wrote environmental interpretation, and you were writing about thematic interpretation. You said, "I never realized people would write boring themes,"
0: yeah.
1: and, and, it, <laughs> and it really made me laugh. And I think that's where you know this this idea of making a difference on purpose, you know, having a reason behind doing what you're doing. It's not just enough that it has a sentence, you know, that it's a grammatically a sentence and has a period on it on the end. It's right. got to be on purpose. And I think that that's been so critical to this, this conversation. And, and uh, for, the, for the listener at home, this is an audio podcast, but Sam is laughing right now. So thank goodness for that. But uh, <laughs> what, what is the difference as, as your career evolved and as your thinking evolved uh, on thematic interpretation, taking us from, you know, here is technically what a theme is to here's a theme where you're actually making a difference on purpose. I chose the subtitle
0: of, of the book, and notice I, I, it didn't have the word environmental, the title didn't mm-hmm, have the word mm-hmm. environmental like my first book. And that's be, and there was a reason that one did, uh, but, but, uh, but this one particularly didn't because I kept hearing from people in the cultural resources field, well, that's nature interpretation. Yeah, but that doesn't apply to what we do. Of course, mm-hmm. the human brain is the human brain. It doesn't matter what topic you're presenting. <laughs> so So part of my reason for just the title interpretation Uh, without reference to nature or culture or any just interpretation was that and then the subtitle to make making a difference on purpose is again me saying listen this is not a magic trick you're trying to pull off You're, you're not you're not pulling a rabbit out of a hat you're not you know throwing some communication thing at the wall and crossing your fingers and hoping to get lucky which is what you're doing when you just make it up Right. But you can be more strategic, not to say that some people aren't intuitively gifted It's in exactly what I'm talking about. They take my workshops all the time. They come up, they, they love them. They come up afterwards and say, Sam, you know, I really didn't learn a lot, but now I can explain it. Now I can explain my own brilliance, is what they're is what they're saying to me, you know, which is what to me is a great great outcome. But I want interpreters to know they can be more strategic. And and there's something that that word strategy and being strategic sort of sort of rubs against the creative freewheeling spirit that really good interpreters bring to their work. And, and, and that's always been a tough line for me to toe that some people think, well, having a theme is, is locking you in, it's, it's restricting or constraining you. And, and I always say, well, no, a theme is not, you're not, it's not a jail you're putting yourself in, it's a creative launching pad. Yeah. Once you have this idea in mind, a strong theme by definition is a sentence or could be a couple of sentences, that without any further development, without any embellishment, without any further anything, just those words already stimulates thought, already provokes thought, what Tilden called provocation. Without any, And if you start with a strong theme, not a boring, listless theme and this, is this group in the the national park service in the southeast region has just developed a fabulous virtual training program based on tour with the uh, uh, christiana admiral in the atlantic office where they contrast blockbuster themes with lackluster themes so you can you can <laughs> you can say which I, I really quite like what they they did with that i like a lot of what they did in fact all of it but that's the idea that if you just have this this thing in mind that now guides your selection of information what to include what to exclude what to emphasize what to de-emphasize or leave out altogether right but your goal is still this already thought-provoking idea you are you're close to success before you even start but when you start with a boring idea that sometimes i know interpreters interpret things that are even boring to them but the boss (laughs) says i gotta do it (laughs) you know (laughs) so so i'm just it's a matter of strategy this is a terrific starting point And that's why I I have a whole chapter in interpretation, making a difference on purpose, called Not All Themes Are Equal. It's about how to write thought-provoking themes, strong themes.
2: There's, you know, the big difference between a theme and a topic.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's where it started in
0: 1992 in in my first book. I, I was still, people were still getting the two mixed up. Yes. And and I guess even, you know, I speak Spanish and I do done work all over Spain and, and every Latin American country and the Caribbean as well, where to this day they want even our, our colleague Manuel Gondra in 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 Mexico, well he really prefers the word thesis in Spanish, tesis, hmm. rather than tema, because in Spanish the word tema, which is what theme is in Spanish, tema literally is taken to mean topic. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so when you're trying when you're trying to t- convince people, you're not just picking a topic now then to talk about. You know, you're selecting an idea, a moral of the story, I like to call it, that mm-hmm. you're trying to develop. I mean that's that's the, the difference between otherwise it's just teach or tell.
1: So well, Song so you- is going to ask the next question, but I did want to jump in and say I, I know exactly the timing of the conversation that we had. Because your the book, Interpretation, Making a Difference on Purpose, was published in 2013. This, I can tell you, you and I were talking about this in 2009. And the reason I remember that is not because of the specific workshop, regional workshop that we were attending, but because I was wearing my 2008 Phillies World Series baseball cap. And you thought that that was hilarious and that I was taunting you with it. So
0: you were, you were having a go at me. He was trash talking me like you. you,
2: you. Oh, I already know his like, you know, backdoor, (laughs) trash talking, you know, (laughs) just passive aggressive. Yeah. So, Sam, you've mentioned several times uh, your work in Latin America. You speak fluent Spanish. I've heard a rumor about some work you've done in the Galapagos.
0: Well, it's not just a rumor. It turns out to be true. I've actually worked <laughs> in Galapagos oh, probably 20 times over since the early 1980s. My last couple of times there, i often go down and train guides uh, for the <laughs> Galapagos National Park and, and Charles Darwin Research Station. And, and there they have a very stringently defined uh, process to be certified as a guide, which means you're allowed to be a guide in Mm -hmm. Galapagos. And I've really enjoyed that training a lot over the years, but the last couple of times, I think the last time I was there was 2019. Um, one, one of the 2000s <laughs> fairly <laughs> recently i told these guys they're all they're all what they call galapaganos you have to be a galapagos native which is a galapagano in order to be a guide that you can't oh, just gosh. come in from the mainland and hope to get a job because now you're taking a galapagano's job and so it's very very strictly uh, enforced and but i would tell them don't talk to me about this Galapagano stuff, because I'll tell you, I'm at least half Galapagano, because <laughs> I have trained so many of them over the past 30 years that I know and I met, I could name them. I have I've trained several current guides' parents, mm. and in one case, a grandfather. <laughs> so, yes, I've worked in Galapagos for a long time, and, and, uh, and a lot of it has been guide training, but also I've done uh, work there uh, with National Geographic and Lindblad Expeditions, one of the truly enlightened sustainable travel tour companies based in New York and Seattle, on uh, traveler's philanthropy, which is where interpretation can be harnessed not only to stimulate thought, make meaning, promote an appreciative attitude about what is being interpreted, but also, which is often all an interpreter wants, but sometimes a behavior is also of interest. Philanthropy is a behavior. It involves donating money. In this case, money to local conservation, right? Not to a black hole, but to local conservation in Galapagos in this case. That worked, again, it, it was, it, we, we did it first in 1998, and then uh, we repeated it in 2010 because of some changes in that 12-year period, and a new ship and some other things, a, a, a major federal budget deficit, and where were donations really declined for a period of time, and so we went back and did a redo. But we, we in, in 1998, uh, were asked, Sven Lindblad called me on the phone and said, I think you can help us, and so... I I said yes, and uh, my wife of now 52 years, Barbara and I, who's a graphic designer like Paul, uh, and uh, before I became a big shot, you know, executive director, he was a graphic designer. We went down there and uh, with the help of another uh, one of my former graduate students did a little bit of research interviewed guests on these ships and developed a thematic communication strategy, a thematic interpretation strategy that replaced everything in the ship and created a little visitor center. We trained up the guides who were on the shore excursions, you know, every every 12 people have to have a guide with them no more than 12 and the guide gives his or her own commentary but we showed them strategic themes they could work into their commentary this was not fundraising we never asked them for money until the last thursday night they when they they disembark on sunday morning for the last time to go home but on thursday night they'd come back to their cabins after dinner and the, and the sheet would be turned down and then you know the obligatory uh, chocolate would be on the pillow but only on thursday night there'd be this little homespun photocopied brochure called the In- to participate in the long-term protection of Galapagos, which incorporated, as well as all of the interpretive materials on ship, as well as what the guides were saying in their shore excursion commentaries, these strategic themes. And I was asked in my final presentation at the Charles Darwin Research Station, asked by Sven Lindblad, who'd flown down for this, how much I thought they would increase donations, and of course I never ever thought of a number. I was just doing the work. And, and, and I told him later that I haven't asked been asked a question that hard since my doctoral defense. You know? <laughs> and, and he t- totally stunned me. And I hummed and hawed and then I did a, a soft shoe and finally blurted out 30. Sven, I think we can increase donations by 30%. And he nodded and everybody else in the room looked at him and they all nodded. And so 30 became the number. Well. In six months, we had increased donations by 277%, mm-hmm. quadrupled them. And so that was, that was like this telling moment. And then that work became quite famous around the world in the sustainable tourism industry. And, uh, and we were being asked to go speak everywhere about it. And then uh, since then, we've also done it in Baja, California, with, with Lindblad in the Arctic as well, in the Svalbard Archipelago, a worldwide ocean campaign, and, and with uh, Natural Habitat Adventures and, uh, and World Wildlife Fund. Another travel partnership in uh, in Churchill, Canada, where the polar bears convene on the ice gels to go out and hunt seals again, and which is one of the 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 epic tourism nature-based tourism experiences. Go go see the polar bears in Churchill, Man- Northern Manitoba, Canada. Stunning, along with Northern Lights, by the way, just for added value. But uh, that that work has become really really important, and it, it spawned a, a whole. I'm really happy about this. A whole emphasis that is that is known as traveler's philanthropy now and 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 every year or so there's the the uh, the center for responsible and sustainable tourism crest based at stanford university holds a conference somewhere in the world still on traveler's philanthropy at least i think they're still doing it annually so that's been quite a just a personal one of those things that you're just really glad you you get to do because you can the results are so tangible and you can see them in your lifetime and that's pretty hard to come by when a lot of what educators do is long term and sometimes you don't live long enough to see to see it all but but uh, this is one of those really gratifying things I've had the great privilege to be able to do.
2: Well, the question about Galapagos ended in Manitoba, Canada, on, <laughs> with this story. So interpretation really can. Take you all over the world. Yeah,
0: it I pinch myself sometimes at the places that I have been able to see and know multiple times. Most of them,
2: yeah,
0: uh, and many of those times, uh, my wife Barbara, who is a graphic designer, has been able to come with me, and sometimes she's hired also mm-hmm. to come with me. So, so it's like getting nothing. I'm bragging about this, but I pinch myself sometimes when I'm in these places, thinking. I would have paid a lot of money to be here, I'm, yet I'm getting paid to, to do what other people would do just for fun, and so, boy, I complain about a lot of things, but my career never.
1: never <laughs> won. You, what, you, what you complain about mostly is the Mariners' bullpen. I know that. Yeah, right. uh, The right. So you're touching on the last question that I have. I did want to ask you this as we, as we get out of here. So one last question, if you don't mind, which is, You've mentioned your international work quite a bit, and obviously that's a a big part of your contributions to the field over the years, Uh, not just in terms of the the content and the research, but literal contributions to the field in that your books have been translated and you have not asked for royalties in exchange. You have literally just donated these titles to organizations to to raise money for their for their own efforts as well so that's been philanthropic on your part but i'm i'm curious to know and i'm not going to ask you to comment on that let me i'll just do the commenting on it that that is that is generous of you to do that and uh it's important for the field that your work is is out there in that way the question i have for you the final question here uh on this episode and we'll surely have you on again how much you know? NAI is involved in in international work, right? We have an international conference, and we travel around the different parts of the world, and uh, we we've interacted with interpreters all over the world. A former guest on this podcast was our tour guide from Costa Rica, Ronnie, and that was a really fun fun episode for us. I'm curious to know how much of what you write and what you say about interpretation is universally applicable around the globe for all interpreters, and how much of it is specific to individual places?
0: Well, that's a great question. <laughs> the, my, my first answer is one hundred percent of it is applicable all over the world. There's a reason my books now the, the interpretations now in in thirteen languages and 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 by the way, I have this wonderful publishing company based in uh, well, it used to be in Golden. Now it's in Wheat Ridge, Colorado. That's down the road from you. Fulcrum Publishing, and and they 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 are agree with this. Uh, this is this is important to me. This is about handing what what I said at the beginning of our interview is that I want to make this approach to to communication or interpretation that I call the Tor model, make it available in a very applied way to people everywhere. And that includes I worked in about 60 countries, you know, I mean, think 10s of 1000s of people, you know, I think 60,000. There's still somebody at the University of Idaho that keeps tabs on this when I go, I send them numbers and they keep accumulating them. Um, and, and, and that's because those ideas are applicable because the human brain is a human brain. now how an interpreter applies them that of course is going to have cultural nuances to it we do nothing is more cultural than how we communicate and so that's why i'm working with right now uh, jen lee from uh, korea professor lee uh, he's working on the Korean translations. It's, it's all, he, he'll have it out by the end of the year, he says. But it's, you wouldn't believe the conversations he and I uh, have, and sometimes we bring in Naoko Yamada, who who uh, just the Japanese version's just off the off the press, and so it's out there now. That Naoko, who's my former graduate student, right, did, and had, because they're both Asians, and they're even though they're very different languages, there's some cultural things there that that they that they understand uh, uh, with one another that are totally new to me. These are. fascinating fascinating exchanges of emails with with Dr. Lee and and earlier with Naoko uh, about how to translate. You know in the word, in, in the Japanese language, there is no translation or standard one translation for the word interpretation or making a difference. So oh, no. <laughs> it started with the title. <laughs> so, but but as I said, the human brain is the human brain. And so th- the, the principles are going to apply, but how a talented interpreter who understands her or his audience communicates, applying the T-O-R-N-E. How that looks, that application looks, can be very different and dependent upon the specific place. Or, or culture. I mean, e- e- even in the United States, and right? how I would approach giving a talk, it, any is is going to matter whether I'm in Seattle, Fort Collins, the Bronx, Biloxi, Mississippi, <laughs> Atlanta, Georgia, or Miami, Florida. I mean, for all reasons we can all readily relate to, and and so uh, it, it 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 it's it's that. But my approach would be the same.
1: Well Sam we've kept you longer than we meant to. We really appreciate this this amazing conversation and it's you know it's such a pleasure for me to get to to sit here now after you know after you and I have known each other for so long and just to sort of to recap like let's look at the highlights of Sam Ham's contributions to the field. I mean that's been this that's been really <laughs> fun and fascinating for me. And so, so hard to not just talk baseball the whole time. So it's uh, Sam, Sam and I text regularly whenever there's important baseball games going on. We're gonna we're gonna try to do some baseball travel. Sam and I have seen a couple of games together. So this yeah, is it, it was really hard to not just talk baseball the whole whole time.
2: I've only threatened to join you on some baseball song and I.
1: Well, are you trying are, to get are to more London.
0: than welcome.
2: <laughs>
1: and so here, Sam, as you know, is how we end the podcast every single time we're going to see if we can get it this time and And interpreters interpreters, that's what's up up. oh man i was off on that one i was off i'm the problem i continue to be the problem so sam and song you guys were great sam thank you so much this has been so much fun Thank thank you
2: have a great summer sam